Can we have unity among differences? That's the question Paul's asking here in Romans 15. As one author put it, can we have solidarity among differences? Solidarity is, is not really a word that's used much these days, but it means, to, it means rather a fellowship arising from a common responsibility and interest as between members of a group or between classes or people. That's us. We have solidarity because of our union and faith in Christ, but we have differences. We have differences in opinion. We have differences in backgrounds, feelings, emotions, and as we've been discussing these last couple of weeks, differences in conscience. So how do we live together with that? How do we have solidarity, unity, and why would we in the church among these lower-level, low-priority differences? How can we do this? And there's only one way. And that is through the common bond of union with Christ. And when that happens, that brings glory to God. Last week, we looked at how we're able to relate to each other, specifically each other's consciences in the church and disputable matters that they involve. The church is the primary context for all this that Paul is writing to the church at Rome. We are here to help each other in our spiritual journeys, not hinder each other's uh, spiritual growth. In the church, again, we, we exist with each other's consciences, and we need not judge or be harsh with other people's consciences about disputable matters. We are here for mutual growth, not self-gratification, and we act in ways that we try to, as much as possible, be consistent with all of our consciences. Ultimately, we're to use our freedom in Christ to build each other up not tear each other down. This week, Paul sums up the big why of why we would do any of this, and you will not be surprised to know that it bases all on the example of Jesus Christ. And so Romans 15, look at verse 1 with me. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul once again speaks of the strong and the weak, and just to review from last week, the strong appear to be those probably mostly Gentile Christians who have never heard of the food laws, who have never heard of the feast days, and therefore they have no conscience about them whatsoever. But Paul also identifies himself in this passage because he says we, he identifies himself as one of the strong. And think about that again, because Paul, an ex-Pharisee, Right? One who would enforce those food laws and enforce those holy days now has come totally to the other side and has realized we have freedom in Christ and we don't have to obey the food laws, the feast days, the sacrifices of the old covenant because Christ has come and fulfilled all of that. The weak then are the opposite of those, mostly probably Jewish Christians whose conscience still bothers them when they think of eating something that is ceremonially unclean or how they celebrate feast days. Again, Paul confirms that he is one of the strong. And we said last week there was two parts in this passage where that Paul knows and is persuaded that in Christ Jesus that nothing in itself is unclean. All foods have been declared clean by Christ himself in the coming of the new covenant. And Paul gives some instruction. He says, all right, we who are strong are to bear with, or better, bear up, those who are weak, and therefore do not be pleasing yourselves. That's the command. Don't be pleasing yourselves. In verse 2, he gives them, again, he says, each of us then please or be pleasing your neighbor for his good to be building him up. 
And that last part is critical to this. We want each other's good. We want each other to be built up and strengthened in the faith. Or another way to say that is edify our brothers and sisters. We want mutual edification with all things that we do. We want to build each other up. And a few questions should jump out of this. First, what does it mean to please your neighbor? And who is your neighbor? And third, why? Well, what does it mean to please your neighbor? Our word here is the same word as verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. For please, oresco, it means to accommodate. It means to make peace or to take a pleasant attitude with. It does not mean to pamper or to coddle. It does not mean just to cater to every single whim of someone's idea or feelings. It doesn't mean that we don't engage our brains about our opinions. It is a genuine heart attitude to go out of our way to make our brothers or sisters feel more comfortable regarding, again, disputable matters. And that's really important. We've got to keep bringing it back to that. This is not about first order doctrinal issues. If Justin says, you know, I believe that Jesus wasn't really God, not only has he been an elder for a week and he's already fired, (laughs) it means we're, we're not talking about first order doctrinal issues here. We're talking about disputable matters, a.k.a. food laws and things like that, that Paul is dealing with. So to please our neighbor doesn't mean to just coddle them. It doesn't mean to walk around on eggshells with them and try and always figure out what they want or what they think. And it means to make accommodations for them as much as possible for us on disputable matters to make their way a little bit easier. Second, who is our neighbor? Everyone who is near you. That's what the word means in context, in your immediate circle, in this case, the immediate circle, clearly talking about brothers and sisters in the church of Christ, fellow Christians. And third, why would we do this? Well, that's what verse 3 tells us. For, or because, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the approaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul says, well, we do this because Christ did not please, same word there, Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, and then he quotes Psalm 69.9, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so in context, this is a prayer of David in the Psalm to say that I am then trying to uphold your law, I'm trying to do a, be a God-honoring person, and the people that reproach God then also reproach King David. But then Paul uses this to talk about Jesus Christ. This is also a messianic psalm. And Paul is ascribing this to Jesus because he said, remember Jesus, because Jesus. And so he's ascribing this, ascribing this to Jesus, saying, in essence, the people who hated God the Father also hated Jesus. And when they reproached Jesus before they put him on the cross, guess what? They also reproached God and vice versa. When they reproach God, they also reproach Jesus and so what's, what's the comparison here? This is one of Paul's classic how much more arguments. Meaning, if Jesus gave himself up to bring us the ultimate good, how much more should you give yourselves up with your opinions about smaller matters? That's what he's saying here. He's like, because Jesus didn't please himself. Why are you guys trying to please yourself about these small matters? Can't we just suffer minor inconveniences when Christ died, suffered and died for our salvation? He is our model in this of how we treat other people. 
So here's the first point. Because Christ suffered for us, we seek to accommodate others for their edification. Because Christ suffered for us, therefore, we seek to accommodate others for their accommodation. I can't stress enough that this is not sinful people-pleasing. Proverbs says that's fear of man, and that is a trap. When we're worried about what other people think of us or worried about always pleasing people, that is sinful. We're making them an idol. We're making their opinions an idol. That is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about minor inconveniences that you do, you go without in order to accommodate someone else. This is bearing with or bearing up people in their minor inconveniences on disputable matter in order to edify. That last part's important. We're not just doing this to make them like us. We're doing this to build them up in the faith, to remove obstacles in their spiritual journey. Try and put this in our context. Again, maybe think about this a different way because it's harder for us to relate to food laws and things. And think about going out to dinner with a brother or a sister who has a long history of struggling with the sin of drunkenness. Can't you go without having a beer for one dinner because of your brother or sister? That's what we're talking about here. This kind of minor inconvenience so that you would clear the way for your brother or sister. That's what we're talking about here. And again, this is not really bear with. The word is really bear up in that we are seeking to strengthen our brother and sister, not just put up with their silliness. We want to bear them up. One study Bible says it's not merely to tolerate or put up with, but to uphold lovingly. The old commentator Murray points out that bear is not to be understood in the sense of bear with, frequent in our common speech, but in the sense of bearing up or carrying. The strong are to help the weak and promote their good to edification. Going back to our example of going out to dinner and alcohol, like if you just insisted, like, I just, I want a beer. I had a hard day. I'm going to have a beer. I don't care if this guy struggled with drunkenness. That's called being a jerk, okay? You don't need to do that. It is a minor inconvenience. You can go without it. Our minds should go to the many one another commands in Scripture, perhaps primarily in Galatians 6.2, which tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See how Paul again in Galatians tied in the law, the law of Christ. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love each other as much as you are loving yourself. This is a great way to love your neighbor. And so fulfill the law of Christ. And so first, we have to know our brothers and sisters. We have to know their backgrounds and the sensitivities that lay within their conscience. And again, trying to relate this to our time. It's a little difficult because the whole thing is about food laws. And most of us don't worry about that. Maybe if they grew up in a house that celebrated the dark side of Halloween with demons or ghosts or death, probably not a good idea to ask them to go trick-or-treating with you. Maybe, again, if they had a problem with alcohol or grew up in an alcoholic home, don't drink in front of them. Maybe they grew up in a home that didn't go out to eat on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, or spend money. Maybe invite them over to your house instead of insisting on going out to a restaurant. Again, these are minor issues Paul's talking about. Can't we be temporarily inconvenienced for others in light of how much Christ suffered for us? That's Paul's point. The Apostle Paul models this for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
2 Corinthians. I was wondering why the word superfluous was in my passage and shouldn't have been. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you, are, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the real seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say to these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an axe. An ox, rather, at, treads, was it, treads out the grain. It is, for, is it for oxen that God is concerned? And jump down to verse 12, the second part. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul is saying. What's the most important thing? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the most important thing for my brother? That they grow in maturity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of Christ, in light of how he suffered for me, don't you think that I can and should go without? Be minorly inconvenienced on very small matters? Absolutely yes. The point of our lives is that we're not always out to please ourselves. It's not always about getting your way. Parents, how many times have you said that to small children? It's not all about you. The world does not rotate around you. It's not always about getting your way. Maybe it was just me that said that a lot to our kids. Now, as we've said in the last two weeks, we have to put in a caveat here to protect ourselves against the extremes. It's not always about us getting our way. That we've made clear. But neither is it just going along with everything our, our weaker brother or sister might say in their opinions. This does not mean that we don't get to have conversations about these things. This does not mean that we just go willy-nilly in trying to people-please, right? Here are the dangers, right? Either we just steamroll our own way all the time because we feel we have the right, or we just go with whatever anyone else says all the times without engaging our brains or not having a conversation about it. And that has everything to do with the Word of God and the role of the Word of God in this. And that's where Paul goes next. I'm going to break out this one verse because it's so important. Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance or through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul says, whatever was written in the past, meaning the whole Old Testament, whatever was written in the past, the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Paul just quoted Psalm 69.9, and then he immediately gives support for why he did that. That's why. I'm showing you. Because Psalm 69.9 is for your instruction right here, right now, in this matter. That's what the point of the Old Testament is. You should be fully informed. You should be scripturally understanding what's going on here. The Old Testament was written for our, old, for our instruction, rather. And you might be thinking, the Old Testament? I started the chrono read again. I started the yearly read. I'm already out. Like, I can't. Genesis. Have you read Genesis, Pastor Mike? Like, that gets dicey once you get past chapter 13. The Old Testament, that's where God has that anger problem. And lots of people die. 
I don't like the Old Testament. I like the New Testament with feathered hair, Jesus, and the lamb on his shoulders, and everybody loves everybody. Yeah, the Old Testament, all of it was written for our instruction. We're reminded of 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In the Old Testament, we learned about who God is, and we learned about who we are in light of that God. You can't read Genesis without knowing God is the creator and we are not. You can't read Genesis without realizing that we are separate from this creator and we need some way to relate to this creator. You can't read Exodus without walking away knowing that God is a redeemer and a savior and we're the ones who are in slavery and need redemption. You can't walk away from Leviticus, even Leviticus, without knowing that God is holy, 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 and we are not. The Old Testament teaches us about God, but it also teaches us about who we are in light of God. The Old Testament was written for our instruction, Paul goes on, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. Well, Pastor Mike, I love that word encouragement. I'm all about encouragement. I hope you're going to talk a lot about encouragement. I don't like that other word you mentioned before it, endurance. That sounds scary. That sounds like doing hard things, which it is. I mean, I get encouragement. We read the scriptures and we're encouraged. We rise up on wings like eagles and we fly and we put it on a coffee mug and our t-shirts and we're encouraged. But endurance, I don't like that so much. Because here's the thing about the Bible. After we read it, we have to obey it. And we endure in obeying it. Anybody else sharing special feelings? We're all friends here. It's hard for me to obey the Bible. It's hard for me to obey the Bible. Because why? Because the sin within me doesn't want to obey the Bible. When I read a verse and says, well, no, I don't like that. It must be different in the, in the Greek. Let me just get that out of there. We see that all over progressive Christianity, right? Well, they didn't really mean that. And what's driving the bus then? Our sin. So when we come to the Bible and it's hard, guess who has to change? Not the Bible. We do. And that's difficult. And we endure in obeying the Bible. Endurance is one of the most foundational and scriptural callings of the Christian, although it's sometimes translated as patience. Same word. Luke 8.15 in the parable of the soil, the good soil, says, as for those in the good soil, they are those who, upon hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Bear fruit with endurance. Sometimes we want to just go like, uh, I think it was Paul David Tripp, right? Find the fruit and just staple it all over our branches and like, look at this fruit I just grew. It's like, no, it, it grows through patience and endurance. Colossians 1.11 tells us, Paul, again, that the church is strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Romans already covered this ground, but he says it again in going back to chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. No, I don't like this verse. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. You see that chain of things? All requires endurance. We love the encouragement part. We love the hope part. I'll take those things. But the only way to get those things is through endurance. That's where then hope comes from. And back in our passage in verse 4, right? That through the encouragement, through endurance, and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We get, we get to hope. All that leads to hope. A deeper level of Christian, Christian maturity will and does lead you to a deeper level of Christian hope. But that hope comes through encouragement and endurance. So a second point of this, because we have God's word, we can have hope. Because we have God's word, we can have hope. Remember, we're talking about God's word here. Here he's talking about mostly about the Old Testament. So that's where I'm going to focus when we're in application mode, which we are right now. There are three things that are very dangerous when we're talking about applying the Old Testament. You could ignore it, you could unhitch it, or you could twist it. First, you might be tempted to ignore it. Again, that's a common evangelical trait. I don't like the Old Testament. It's got a lot of weird things in it I don't understand from thousands of years ago that don't relate to me anymore. It's difficult. Just one more reason why to come to church and listen to a bald guy like me who endured school to be able to hopefully tell you what the Old Testament says and then apply it to our lives. My calling as a pastor is to preach the word. Not my own thoughts. I don't have any original thoughts. This is, this is the word that we're preaching here. And in that case, to provide a balanced diet of the word, which is why if you've been with us for a little while, you might think we just hang out in Romans for the rest of our lives. We're not. We're actually coming to the end of it. We're in 15 already. After we've been in the Old Testament, we're going to bounce back. I mean, after we've been in the New Testament in Romans, we're going to bounce back to the Old Testament. We're going to be in Genesis after this. That's why before Romans, where were we? We took, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 11 weeks to go through God's law, to go through the Ten Commandments. So we're always going to try to do that balanced diet. I'm not just going to hang out in the Old Testament, New Testament. We have to do both in a wide variety of what God has given us in all the genres of Scripture there. We can't ignore the Old Testament, even if it's hard to understand. Second, we might be tempted to unhitch it, meaning to toss it overboard. We're New Covenant Christians. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. There is a movement, and there really has been a movement for a long time in squishy evangelical seeker megachurch Christianity to minimize, or even as Andy Stanley said, to literally unhitch the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament, which is crazy to think about because um, we're just in chapter 15, and Paul's dropping the Old Testament all the time. <laughs> How many times has Paul talked about the Old Testament, referenced the Old Testament? You can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. This is all God's Word. And I know it's hard to understand, but it's there for a reason, for our endurance and encouragement, our instruction, and so that we might have hope. We have to know it in context and particularly the context of God's big story. And that's the third one. We could, we could ignore it, we could unhitch it, but we could also twist it. 
It's so dangerous to pull a verse out of the Old Testament and then staple it to our lives in 2024 without knowing the context of it. And that happens all the time. We have to know God's word. We have to realize it is just as much as inspired and inerrant, as authoritative as the New Testament. And then if it is God's word, we should seek to know it and understand it and obey it. But we have to know the context, and particularly, again, the context of God's big story. All the Bible tells one story. We have a meta-narrative. My kids in eighth grade school are tired of hearing me say, there's a biblical meta-narrative. There's four parts to the Bible. It all, goes, it all tells the same story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. At some point, even the weird, scary parts about Leviticus, they relate to that big story. They're somewhere on that spectrum. Why? What is it telling us? You have to understand it all in context. And Paul says that's our instruction and our encouragement through endurance. And that's where we get hope. One commentator writes that this is a fundamental principle in the Christian understanding of the Bible. What God caused to be written in the Old Testament has ultimate relevance to Christians who experience the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Of course, there are many different kinds of material in the Old Testament that relate to Christians in many different ways. And so the idea is we get to see the end of the story. Like, think about the Old Testament writers. They knew the Messiah was coming. We saw the fulfillment of the Messiah. We saw Jesus, and we see now how we're supposed to live as the New Testament church. How can we have hope when we read the Old Testament? There's one giant overarching theme that needs to help and drive us, and that is the faithfulness of God himself. We see that despite the unfaithfulness of God's people, Israel, he is still faithful to himself. It is impossible to thwart God's plan. It is impossible for God not to fulfill his promises, no matter how badly his people try and mess it up. God is perfectly faithful There's not one promise that God has made to Israel that he left unfulfilled. The Old Testament teaches us, among many things, that God is perfectly faithful, perfectly holy, yet we are unfaithful and sinful, and God bears with us. God bears us up, and he works his promises through us. And God is still doing this today as we seek to live out our faith in the local church And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 5, back in Romans 15. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul literally prays for the Roman church. He prays for them to have the endurance to obey God's word. He prays for them to be encouraged. He prays for them to live in harmony with one another. And together, he prays for them to be unified so that they might glorify God. Where does all this come from? Well, he dropped it in verse 5, in accord with Jesus Christ. In other words, without Jesus Christ, there can be none of this. But because of Jesus Christ, there can be all of it. Note how Paul reminds them that God the Father is the very source, God the Father of. He is endurance and encouragement. In other words, you want endurance and encouragement, go to God, because he is the source of those things. 
And where should this endurance and encouragement have the greatest effect? In the context of the church. We will then be granted to live in such harmony with one another that we will with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us are musically inclined, and harmony is when we have different voices layered on top of one another, all singing different notes together to form the chord. It sounds beautiful. When we have different instruments playing the notes with different sounds, it blends together to make one voice. Though different parts and different instruments, it all comes together in harmony to make one beautiful sound. Last Sunday when we had our member meeting, we sang all four verses of the hymn that I just forgot when it went right out of my mind. Be Thou My Vision. And it was epic. It was just us singing. We're going to take it on the road. We're going to record it. We're going to record a record. (laughs) Voices coming together in harmony. And it was beautiful. Not in conflict. Not in division. Then when the world sees Christians living together in that harmony and that unity, it brings glory to God. And that's where verse 7 comes in. Therefore, back to the top. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul wraps this up all together. It's because of everything I just said then. This is why you need to be welcoming one another. Because it leads to the glory of God. He said this at the beginning of chapter 14. This is all kind of one big thought that we've been picking apart here week by week. 14 verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. And he says at the end of 15.7, same thing, welcome. We call that an inclusio in the the biz, right? It's just the bookends. It's really, really important. He's telling you these things. He's wrapping these things up. So just like the command in 14.1, Paul says, welcome each other, make it easier for them, and that will bring harmony, and that will bring glory to God. So here's the third point. Because God enables us, we can have unity. Because God enables us, we can have unity. Let's face it, if this were up to us, we wouldn't have unity. If this were just up to us and our own ideas of what we should do and not do, we're not going to have unity. We're all naturally, as Luther, I think it was, says, we're all naturally bent inwardly on ourselves. We're all really good at pleasing ourselves, aren't we? And when you get a lot lot of people together in the church, what if everybody's trying to please themselves? Because that's where sin will lead us. But if you have in the unity of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, new hearts, new minds, new attitudes, new humility, now we're talking. Because God enables us, we can have unity in the church. But God, the God of endurance and encouragement, literally grants us, Paul says. He gives us this ability to live in unity in the church. He provides it. He gives us the ability to live in such a unity with each other. And when we do that, it is sweet, as Len read in his prayer, probably stole my notes. Psalm 133, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There's a sweetness about that, isn't there, church? There is a sweetness about what we do here. There's a sweetness about Highlands Bible Church. There is a unity. But this is a request, Paul's saying here. This is a prayer. Paul's praying here. He says, may God grant you to live in this harmony together so that you can glorify him together. This speaks to the essential nature of prayer. Unity and harmony in the church, especially on smaller matters, doesn't just happen. 
It happens through prayer. So first, are we praying this way for Highlands Bible Church? True, we have enjoyed remarkable unity, remarkable harmony here, but let's not take that for granted, church. This, this is not the work of us. And we could just as easily pat ourselves on the back and go, yeah, we're so united and so harmonious. Yay, us. No, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing that. And we need to continue to pray for that. And so if only there was a time where we could gather together and pray like once a month, (laughs) maybe the first Sunday of the month at 6 p.m. up in the office. The next prayer meeting, I want somebody swinging this. I want somebody saying, listen, God, you're the God of endurance and encouragement. Please grant us at Highlands Bible Church to live, us, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus, our Savior, that together with one voice, we will glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a prayer. You want to increase the effectiveness of your prayer life, by the way? Pray scripture. Pray through the Psalms. Look at Paul's prayers. This is one of them. You got some in Ephesians. You got some in Colossians. Find them. Okay, we all default to the be with prayers, right? Dear Lord, be with that person, be with that person, be with that person. He's omnipresent, by the way. He's already there. He's like, thanks, got it. I was planning on watching the whole world. Glad you gave me that permission. I do it too. I poke because I love. I do it too. We all default to that, right? Maybe it's a Christian kid thing. But how much more powerful... Is it to pray, God, you're the God of endurance and encouragement. Grant us, grant me, grant me with with my wife, with my family, with my friends, with specific people maybe that you're having a conflict with. Oh, no, that we would live in such harmony with them in accord with Jesus that together with one voice we might glorify the God and Savior or Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray scripture. What makes all this unity and harmony difficult? People, right? Because they're jerks. No, sin. Sin makes all this hard. Sin makes this different. It makes it difficult. Again, if we're all have for our own selves, this isn't going to work. We can default back to that very, very quickly. And we've all done it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and just because I can, because I want to. I'm going to treat you like that because I just want to. I'm going to do this thing or not do this thing or whatever because I'm in charge. What also makes it difficult is what Paul has been saying about this whole, this whole time, right? Differences in our consciences, our convictions. Differences in backgrounds, personalities, sensitivities. Differences in those consciences. How much more then do we need unity from God? And that comes down to humility with each other in prayer. Dr. Schreiner put it this way in his commentary, Paul is not praying that unity will be achieved via the weak surrendering their unsatisfactory theology. He prays that they will be unified by learning how to love and accept one another in the midst of their differences. It's not about correcting other people's thoughts. You know, you really shouldn't think that way about the food laws. Here, have a salami shrimp and scallop and bacon sandwich and eat this. Eat it! We're not forcing people to change their theology. We are bearing with one another in the midst of their differences. Unity amongst differences. Solidarity amongst differences. Unity and harmony in the church over minor minor matters doesn't come from us forcing others to be like us. 
It comes from bearing up those around us and seeking to build them up and not just satisfy ourselves. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. Christ welcomed you into salvation. You can't welcome your brother or sister in a minor matter where you're different. And that's the, un- the end goal again is what? The glory of God. Paul says, when the world looks at the church, it actually shouldn't make sense. It should see people that are different, different backgrounds, different tastes, different whatever, and they all love each other, and they all are united around the most important thing, their faith in Jesus Christ, and the other matters just fall to the wayside, and the world should scratch their heads. Say, that doesn't make sense, and that brings glory to God, because then they know it's not us, it's God. And so here's the big idea. Unity in the church brings God glory. Unity in the church brings God glory. Church, we have everything we need for unity in the church. We are all united in Christ through faith. That's the biggest thing. Without that, we have no unity. It's unity in the gospel. The unity that we are all alike under sin, that we are all separated from God because of our sin, that we all could not do anything to help ourselves, to make ourselves alive. Dead people can't help themselves. We know that Christ then intervened for us, came to earth as the perfect man and God, lived that perfect life that we could not live, died on the cross in our place, was resurrected by the Father to the glory of the Father, and now is seated at the right hand of God. He is our Savior. That is what we can have unity in. So there, again, because of that, we can have all the unity we need on the smaller stuff. And therefore, we start from that point of union with Christ. Because Christ suffered and died on the cross for us, we can accommodate others for their edification and for their good. We have God's word. We have all of it. It's written for our instruction, for endurance and encouragement, which ultimately leads to hope. Because we have God's word, we can have hope in all things, but particularly in the way we relate to each other and bearing each other up. And this is all and only from God. God enables us to do this. Through God, we can have unity in the faith. And that, that unity in the church, brings God glory. Can we have solidarity in the midst of minor differences? Paul says absolutely, 100% yes. That's what needs to happen in order to bring God glory, and that is all a work of him. And that's how it works today. Father, we thank you for your goodness We thank you for your love. We thank you for this passage, Lord, as we've been studying this for the last couple weeks and understanding disputable matters and minor issues. We pray that we would consider others more important as ourselves. And we pray that you would be strengthening our hearts to see those areas in our lives that are not in conformity to Scripture. We pray that you will help us to have that unity, to realize that unity, to walk in that unity And so bring glory to God in the church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.